Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together with you, the community of educators worldwide, want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to Episode 9, Planning with Intentionality, a math mentoring moment with Kirsten Dick. Are you ready, John? Let's dive in, buddy. In episode nine of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast, we have another math mentoring moment episode coming your way with Kirsten Dick, a grade seven, eight, nine math teacher in rural Saskatchewan, Canada. Kirsten is working through how to bring out effective learning goals in all of the great lessons using the ideas she's already using. Listen in as we welcome Kirsten to the podcast and we all put our minds together to work through this very common challenge we are all experiencing across the grades. Well, hey there. We are here with Kirsten Dick, who is a teacher in Saskatchewan. We are ready to chat with her. Kirsten, can you uh, fill us in a little bit about yourself? What do you teach? What is your teaching story? Well, I'm a mostly middle years math teacher. I teach in a smallish town just outside of Saskatoon. And my school division is Prairie Street School Division. So we are the donut that surrounds Saskatoon, but in a fairly large in size that can be a couple of hours commute from one end to the other with a lot of kilometers in between. And I've been at the same school since the year 2000. So I'm really grateful to have been there. And I've taught all sorts of different subject areas and grade levels for a grade seven to 12 school. And because we're rural, depending on the year, different uh, subjects come into play. So the last, and this will be my fourth year in a row that I'm back in the math classroom, that I was mostly doing some ELA and social studies before with the middle years. And there were some retirements and I hadn't taught math for a few years. So I asked my outgoing principal, hey, can I teach the math again? And he said, sure, I'll put it down on the timetable for next year. So I'm very fortunate that right now I've got some sections of grade eight math and grade nine math. And I have a combined class of workplace and apprenticeship math, which is for the grade 11s and 12s right now, which I think in your Ontario curriculum would be kind of like perhaps the college stream math, something similar. Now, we're curious, uh, why did you want to become a teacher uh, in the first place? And it sounds like, you know, you've requested for some math sections as well. So maybe in particular, like what about math has uh, sort of got you excited lately? Well, I've always liked uh, kids and working with kids at summer camp and youth groups and that sort of thing. My dad's a teacher. I have lots of family members that are teachers. So it was something that seemed like a natural fit. And back in the 90s, when I was finishing high school and deciding to start university, picking a subject area. Back at the time, there were not a lot of jobs here in Saskatchewan. Lots of people were moving to Alberta to teach. And the advice was, well, you're a female, you should go if you don't really care what you want to teach, you should go into math and science. And so that's what I did. And I liked math lots as a young person. So I've always been interested in teaching math. And when I was at university, 
there were some things that I was doing with my third and fourth year math classes because I was doing a direct entry four-year education degree that you take some arts classes and education at the same time. And some of the math classes, I thought, how is this going to help me teach kids? <laughs> so the methods classes, uh, not always super useful when one of my assignments was, what numbers are you typing into the calculator to get an answer? And I thought, hmm, is that really what I'm going to need to teach math? So over the last few years, I've kind of thought about what else should I be doing and how else could I be doing this? But yeah, math has been one of my teaching areas since the beginning. And I'm fortunate that I get to teach math all day right now. I feel very lucky about that. I know John and I feel very similarly as you do about pre-service sort of math methods classes. It's really challenging in the the pre-service programs that are around, not just in in Ontario or in Canada, but everywhere, really trying to help make sure that uh, we get teachers ready for the classroom. Because I feel like, boy, when I hit the classroom, you know, I knew a little bit about structuring and those types of things, but I didn't really feel prepared to actually teach a math course. Yes. And I know there's been some changes on campus and I know Egan Chernoff is one of the math methods teachers there. And there's some really cool stuff that's happening with our pre-service mm-hmm. teachers now at the University of Saskatchewan. So awesome. beautiful. Yeah, it's fabulous. This is a question we ask everybody and we enjoy hearing this response for sure. But uh, could you fill us in on a memorable math moment for you? Now, when we ask a memorable math moment, this is a moment that you could have as a student growing up, uh, something that just pops in your mind that's like this stuck with you. You always remember this or it could be a memorable moment as a teacher. Usually these can be positive, but also they can be negative. Like (laughs) what is stuck with you for a long time? And like, what is that first or not first, but like a moment that's like, ah, every time I think of it, I think of this. Well, for me, there's a couple of things that stand out. One for sure that is math related would be my high school physics teacher. And I remember him literally jumping up on some of the lab tables in the physics classroom when we were doing some physics questions. And all of his questions were somehow he made them real life. And I remember thinking, boy, that's cool. If I ever get to become a teacher, that's something I would like to have that a number of years later that my students are talking about something that happened in the classroom. So that would be something that stands out for me. Secondly, I remember that because I was one of those kids that played the game of school really well, And that I understood, you know, the traditional algorithms as we think about it, that if somebody had asked me to subtract 101, take away 49, that I would have mentally lined them up in my head and done the borrowing without thinking about what the strategies were. And I remember listening to an elementary school teacher talk about, well, I know I teach my students this way, but in my head, I actually do this and came up with a different strategy of friendly numbers. And and I remember thinking, wow, I wish somebody would have told me that there's a faster way to do math in my mind. Mind. So that's something that has kind of stuck with me throughout the years as I walked into the classrooms for the first time and realized, wait a minute, not everyone's going to just be able to memorize the multiplication facts like I did. Okay, what am I going to have to do with this? So that's also something that stuck with me was hearing another teacher talk about how they did math in their head was different than how they taught their students how to do the math. Wow, that definitely resonates with me. I know I was, you know, it sounds like we were very similar in our thinking. I was very good at the game as well. And as being the typical male student that I was, I put in minimal effort wherever possible in my schooling. 
And I just managed to squeak by being one of those lucky ones that could memorize fairly easily and do what I needed to do to kind of jump through the hoop. And, you know, I, the same way teaching in a secondary math classroom, like I would be doing algorithms in my head and I was able to do them, but boy, it wasn't very helpful or convenient. So when I was introduced to this world of math strategies and like friendly numbers and that you could solve different problems that were easier in your mind than the one you were actually dealing with and then applying it to that scenario. That to me was like, you know, an aha moment that came maybe 25 years later than I had wished. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing that. So we want to shift over to um, getting to you, like what's on your mind lately? What sort of struggles or challenges have you experienced in the math classroom along your journey that you want to chat with us about today? Yeah, well, I feel like there are a number of teachers in my division and likely in my province, like there are lots of other places that there's so much cool stuff happening right now in the math world. And when I came back to teaching math, I joked to some of my colleagues that I went to open up my grade seven math file on my computer and it had been so many years that the division had deleted it. So I had to Google, hmm, what's happening now in math? And I stumbled across Dan Meyer's fairly infamous TED talk now about the math class needs a makeover. And I watched that and went, yeah, that's it. This is the new thing. And of course, your names came up with the three act math tasks and the tap into team minds um, website, which I've used since then, because I like that it's connected to some Canadian curriculum outcomes. So doing some of those things and the routines and the number talks and the wish what doesn't belong and all of those things and trying to figure out how to put it all together now that our school division was fortunate enough to have Peter Liliadal come and speak with us. And so the thinking classroom is a is a big thing right now. So I've had whiteboards in my room for the last number of years since I've been back in math since 2015. And so this year we went from horizontal whiteboards to vertical whiteboards, which was great to have him come and we got to experience that with him. So I guess that's where my struggle is right now is what are the next steps for people like myself who have perhaps some new routines and things that we've implemented in the last few years and how do we pull it all together? What's the next step with that? Should I be thinking about assessment or spiraling or where do I go next? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12, setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. I think your story, again, mimics a lot of ours story. And I think that Kyle would agree that, you know, when we started to think about how can we change or adjust our math programs, that when we saw Dan's talk, it 
definitely sparked something in us to go, we can make this change too. And and so then that same progression kind of happened. It went from Dan and Mary and Small to all these resources that were online. And in the last few years, Peter Lilladal and whiteboards vertically, like same kind of thing. So I guess just to dive in a little bit deeper here, like what have you tried so far to kind of put these ideas together? Could you paint us a picture of what maybe a lesson might look like or just what have you done so far and what that what a lesson might look like? Okay, so for the last number of years, I would say that most of the lessons have started with some sort of, and I've just used the term warm up just because that's easy for the kids to think about. If I've happened to have it up on the board, like, oh, we're doing which one doesn't belong to start or a Grease and Wheatley quick draw or a counting circle or whatever it is. And then we move into what we are experiencing often with the whiteboards and a task of some sort and then consolidate that information at the end. And what did we do today and where are we moving to, to tomorrow? Since this year, listening to Peter and experiencing that, sometimes we skip the warm up part and just start right off with the task and the thinking question or a three act task and then do perhaps some of those routines maybe now at the end of the class. So that's been a shift I've made this year. But I guess that's where I'm struggling, if that's the word to use, is how do I decide what I should be doing and which order should I do that in? I really like when Peter speaks about the time to task that when we've got a good question or a good task to start with, you know, you gentlemen speak about the curiosity path, right? Just to spark those kids right away that whether it's a which one doesn't belong up there on the screen or is there something at their whiteboards that we can start with or a video clip or whatever it is to get that thinking going as soon as possible within the classroom. Now, before we go on, I I really appreciate you sharing, sort of painting us that picture of the general structure of a lesson may look like, sound like. You've mentioned uh, which one doesn't belong and number talks earlier. And I want to say coming out of a situation where, like you said, you hadn't taught math in so long that the district deleted your folder of resources (laughs) and to go and Google and then come across Dan And John and I, we were like, whoa, there's something going on here. But then to see all of these other ideas coming in and to so quickly sort of grab the bull by the horns and try to make some sense of it and put it together and put it into action in your classroom. I want to tip my hat to you because that's an awful lot of ideas that you've sort of grabbed onto and you're running with it. And, you know, again, coming and saying, like, I'm not sure when to do this or that or the next thing, but still keeping your sanity, I think think is definitely really important. So before we ask another question, I want to articulate just a couple of things on the warm up. So you had mentioned which one doesn't belong. So we'll put that in the show notes. We know Mary Barassa very well. And her website, wodb.ca is a great warm up activity where kids can, you know, you put a prompt up there. There's four, I guess, four coordinates or, or four quadrants, I should say, with different items. It might be numbers, it might be shapes, it might be graphs, it could be really anything. And every single one of them has a reason why that may not belong compared to the others in the set. I'm wondering, can you help us understand, like you mentioned, quick draw and counting circle. Can you give us a quick little summary of that, just so anyone who's listening who isn't familiar with those routines, just so that they have that? And then we've got a couple more, you know, we'll call it probing questions for you. 
Okay. So first I'm going to give some credit to the Saskatchewan Professional Development Unit because when I said, okay, I'm going to teach math again, they are part of the Provincial Saskatchewan Teachers Federation who do PD for teachers. And so lots of the ideas that I'm using in my room have come from attending those workshops and working with other math teachers. So it's not only my own self on the internet looking for cool math things. I have definitely had some help from colleagues in my province with that. So Grayson Wheatley was a person down from Florida, I believe, that he's got some really cool math things. The Developing Mathematical Fluency is the name of the book, and there's lots of great things in there. And so the Quick Draw is one of his ideas, I believe, that where you just very, very briefly show a geometric shape up on the board or whatever, and then the students are asked to replicate it, and then the conversations that come from that. So that's how a Quick Draw works. A quick build would be the same, but you might have students actually with some snap cubes or something in order to replicate a shape that has been very briefly shown. And in my classroom, I give the students a second look. And then we can talk about what it is that they've seen. They might see something, well, it looks like something else. And then we can tease out some of that geometric vocabulary that goes along with it. So that I love that. I'm picturing that that spatial reasoning yes. just, you know, yeah. flourishing right. there. And I know here in Ontario, spatial reasoning, it seems to be pretty recent on our radar. Like within the last few years, it seems to be like we've we're having these aha moments about how concrete and visual mathematics is. Our curriculum is designed in such a way. But I think we as the teachers going into the classroom, we sort of miss the messaging on that. So we've been doing a lot of work around spatial reasoning. So that for me is a new tool that I am going to definitely be utilizing. And we'll definitely share that out in the show notes. Great. Me too. And just to clarify, when you say you put something up on the board, (laughs) you're flashing it, right? So it's a flash and it's gone. So that just want to be clear. So that the kids can't, they have to draw it from memory. And then that generates the vocabulary. Yeah. And Ah, and it's easily differentiated, of course, for different levels, because you can have the same shapes. And in a grade one classroom, the words that they will use are going to be very different than you might have in a senior math classroom, because they don't have the vocabulary yet to describe, you know, that's an acute angle triangle. Triangle, but they might say, well, I saw three lines connected together and it's called a triangle. So it's interesting because, you know, immediately what jumps into my mind is some of these visual number talks like Joe Bowler's work. And then I also thinking Graham Fletcher, where he does some work on subitizing cards, but he also has it with geometric shapes and he also has a deck or a set with fraction models which is really cool as well. So I see these all sort of fitting in together really nicely. Yes, they do connect very well. Do you mind helping us uh, with a counting circle? What are you referencing with a counting circle? And then we'll keep diving in. I'm not sure what it's technically called, but there's a book called Math Routines. And I think it's like a K to three book. And I believe some teachers probably describe it as count around the circle where you, and again, this is a routine that I heard about from the SPDU and have used with older students in my classroom. So just pick a starting number and pick what we're going to count either up by or down by. And it can be as simple as 
skip counting or counting by fractional amounts, depending on the grade level of the students. And so once everybody gets a number and as the teacher, I record on the number line, a blank number line, what people are at. We talk, of course, a lot about the classroom culture because students have to feel comfortable enough to say what number they think comes next. So that is part of the classroom culture building early in the year, of course. And then it might be something after we've counted around seven or eight people, you know, looking around the room. So what will Johnny on the other side, what number will his be? And it might be 10 people away and people, the students in the class will come up with what is that number? And we record all of the guesses. And then the thinking, well, how did you get that? And that's where the good math can come forward because we get to hear all the strategies. Well, I counted the students and I did this, or I found the pattern on the number line because I know so-and-so was two and a quarter and I added 10 groups of a quarter. I got to such and such. So that's how that works. That is a really cool routine. And I haven't heard it referenced that way, but I had used a resource out of the fraction learning pathway, which was some work by Kathy Bruce and her associates here in Ontario, really trying to pull apart the developmental continuum of fractions. So you can Google that. And we'll also put that in the show notes, the fraction learning pathway. And one of the activities was essentially the same type of structure where we're counting in this case, because it's fractions, it was always fractional amounts. But, you know, how mind blowing when I went into a grade four classroom to try to, I quote unquote, taught the structure by having them count by halves. And then on every hole, they would have to say how many parts and how many holes they had. And boy, oh boy, that became the lesson. It was a shocker when I thought we would warm up with something easy by counting by halves. And we really, really struggled in it. It very quickly made me realize that, holy smokes, we need to do more of these types of activities with students. And I love how, again, non-threatening and we do it to have fun and kids can use manipulatives as we do it, but just to be exposed and to build that fluency. So thank you so much for describing those two. We'll definitely include links to those books you've referenced. We'll also give a shout out to the professional development unit out in Saskatchewan. So I think that's really great that the hard work they're doing is paying off in the classroom. Sometimes folks who work in the district level, they don't always get to see the impact. So it's great to hear from you that you know that uh, impact is actually happening. You also mentioned how you've had Peter Lillidell come in and help you guys kind of work on his research. And I know that not everyone here listening would know about Peter and his research. Would you be able to fill those people in on some of those details? Like I'm not saying fill them on all the research, but what does it look like in your classroom? Like I know there's terms that Peter uses and many people use like VNPS and, you know, random grouping. Maybe just give us a snapshot of what it looks like, what his teachings look like in your room. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Yes. Well, I know that the article that gets most referenced by him has 14 by him is the 14 steps. And the first three, I believe, that are easy, the easiest for most teachers to implement are that vertical non-permanent services. So 
for most people, that just means a whiteboard or kids are upright and working. So whether it's chalkboards or whiteboards or windows, I've heard of teachers using the trophy cases at school because they're glass and can easily be written on and then erased with their whiteboard markers. So that implementation and the students working in those visibly random groups, which I think is really important, especially for those of us that work in the middle years of the high school, that have the students work with different students every single time they come into my classroom. So the visibly random grouping and then starting with a good task. So a good question or a task or something that's really going to hook those kids and spark the curiosity from the moment they walk into the room. So yeah, that's the goal. Most days, most of the time in my room in combination with these other routines. And so yeah, back to that's what I guess kind of my struggle at this is right now is trying to figure out how do I fit all of these really great things together where I can see the kids making sense of math and learning from each other and being able to share their strategies with each other. And how do I pull all of that together as the teacher? And I believe we had discussed previously, you had an opportunity to go visit Jimmy Pye and Alex Overwick. Yes, I was very fortunate to be one of four teachers from our division who traveled with one of our superintendents just a couple of months, well, six weeks ago, I guess, to Ottawa to watch these two gentlemen in their classrooms. And that kind of thing doesn't happen in public education where you get to go places. So I feel very, very fortunate about that experience. And to see Jimmy and Alex in their classroom where they've been using this thinking classroom and the non-permanent surfaces with their students for a number of years, it was really beneficial for us who traveled to see this in action and then think about what can we take back and what are those next steps in our own classroom as we are starting to implement some of these things in the last few years for our own selves. And I think, yeah, being able to watch folks who have kind of dabbled in that area for quite some time. And I know Jimmy and Alex both have done a lot more than dabble. They've gone full steam ahead. So it's nice to see what that might look like if you were to give it a go and stick with it. Because oftentimes I think we as teachers, it's so difficult for us to try something new because often when you do try something new, it really doesn't make sense that it would go perfectly the first time. But our irrational brains sort of immediately jump to bail, you know, like, oh, don't don't do that again because that didn't work instead of, I wonder if I maybe missed something or if maybe it was just like a class culture thing. Like I haven't built that culture yet. Like I haven't given it enough time to help students understand like what I'm trying to achieve here. Like there's so many factors there. So it's really great to be able to go and see what that might look like, sound like, you know, especially if we were to intentionally focus on making some of those changes. So I'm wondering, you know, you've mentioned all these pretty amazing things. And I've got to also say to folks listening at home, some people might be sitting there maybe sweating because they're like, oh my gosh, you've mentioned all these things that maybe I've never even heard of yet. And we don't want people to feel that way. That's for sure. So I guess our question is, what makes you feel like what you're doing right now isn't quite hitting the mark based on what you're hoping for your students on a daily basis? Well, I think because as you mentioned, you can try all these things and until you stick with it for a while, you're not really sure whether you're seeing the benefit. So I think one of the, I don't don't perhaps want to say failures this year, but one of my things that maybe didn't go so well is I'm, you know, trying to find these good tasks to start with. And I had taken what I thought was going to be a great one for some of my students while I was away 
visiting the other math classrooms in Ottawa with some other math teachers. And so I was doing a lot of learning on my own with that group. And I left what I thought was a great task for some of my combined class of workplace 20, 30, grade 11 and 12 students. And it was the question of which is a better fit, the square peg in the round hole or the round peg in the square hole. And so I had left that for them and I'd left a way for them to record their thinking so I could come back and we could talk about it. And I got back to my classroom and none of them had done any math. They had just looked at the diagram or the picture and drawn it something and said, well, we think it's going to be this one. And I thought, oh, but we've been working so hard on that. You have to convince me and you have to prove it. (laughs) So it did mean that when I got back, we got to do the math and they had the chance to really reason that out and apply what we've been talking about. So I guess that for me is it that if I'm not there, are they still going to be doing what I want them to be doing? So that was one of the things that I think, yeah, we have to still keep sticking with this and trying it, even if it doesn't seem like it's going perfectly well every single time, that it's still good for the kids. Kirsten, you've mentioned that, you know, you've left the class, let's say, and a supply teacher has come in, you've left, you know, what you feel is like a really rich task. And I think in that scenario, I'm so happy you shared it, that what jumps into my mind right away is this constant want. And I know you aren't saying this in in, here, but I know I've had conversations with many teachers where a lot of times we tend to blame our struggles in math class on lack of good resources, whether it be I don't have a good textbook or I don't have rich enough problems or I don't have fill in the blank. Like it's really easy for us to peg it on a resource issue. And here you've listed all these, what we would consider to be like really great resources. But the challenge is, is that there's so much that has to be done in order for them to go well. So if we were to go back and think about any of those structures and any of those resources you've mentioned, I've gone into classrooms where I've seen a number talk go beautifully well. And then I've gone into another classroom where the number talk kind of looked and sounded like exactly what you've just described with your students. So there's all this, we'll call it hidden complexity under the hood where I could take the exact same task or the exact same resource and I could try to do anything, I guess, quote unquote, like effective as outlined in research or whatever it might be. And it could come out like totally flat. And I think the challenge when we leave the classroom is that oftentimes we have a supply teacher or occasional teacher that comes in to cover And they just don't have that same intentionality that you had when you left that task, even though you've tried to describe it. And I see the same thing happen even just with classroom teachers and their students. When I go to a resource, I read it, I look at it, and I try to present it, but I've like missed the intentionality, even though the author has done a fabulous job trying to articulate it. So I think some of those pieces are, there's like a lot of moving parts there that we have to be sort of paying attention to. And I'm wondering, like, that facilitating piece is really important. I think your challenge is sort of this idea of like, how do I structure these resources in such a way that I'll be able to facilitate my lesson and be able to pull out, you know, you've mentioned curiosity and be able to get kids to want to convince me instead of just sort of giving me a one-line answer or just a number at the end. What I'm saying, does that help articulate what some of your challenges might be or have I missed the mark there? 
I think it somewhat describes it. Yeah, that we're still dealing with students. And sometimes I think we forget that they're traveling from classroom to classroom throughout the day, at least in our school. And, you know, I'm just one of their teachers for one of the hours of the day. We work on five different classes in a day in our school. And I'm expecting them to think and I'm expecting them to talk and I'm expecting them to be able to discuss their ideas and their reasoning. And that's a lot to ask sometimes. So, yeah, being able to facilitate that and have those productive discussions with them so that they are willing to be able to have those conversations with each other. Yeah. And just to maybe give an example of going back to that facilitating and being comfortable with teaching with these resources. Like when we first started, when we saw Dan's talk and go, you know what? I got to use a 3X math task in my class. Like we, (laughs) it didn't go well. Oh, I remember my first 3X math day as well. Yes. (laughs) For one thing, the kids are like, what is going on right now? This is not a math lesson. It'd be so easy to give up on it too, you know, and just be like, oh, that's not, I'm never doing that again. It was a disaster, right? And when we think this is, you know, Kyle and I have, have really... And this has been great for the two of us because we get to bounce things off each other. And, you know, and this is why these calls exist right now is that you get to bounce those ideas off us and we can bounce them off you. And we spent a lot of time trial and error trying to figure out what is that best method. Because when you see Dan's task, there's really no script there. It's kind of like you are trying to bring out a question, but how do you bring that question out? Is And there's so, like Kyle said before, there's so many moving parts to making that work well for your students to get that curiosity, but also what are the moving parts to bring out the learning? There is so many moving parts in there that we just take for granted that if we just throw this task up or this great learning task that it's going to just flow without doing a lot of moves. And I can definitely see that, you know, like leaving that for a teacher to try, I would imagine that, yeah, they would not, if there is no facilitation, those students aren't going to do any math. And I've definitely had that in my room when I didn't carefully plan out how a talk or a warm-up might go. Like, for example, if I had a would you rather warm-up on the board and saying, like, would you rather do this option or would you rather do this option? Most kids are just going to go like, well, I pick A because I want to. And (laughs) and there's no, how do you bring the math out next, right? So what are the questions that we're going to ask in advance? Like now I do a lot of anticipation. Like what are my kids going to say? And therefore, what are my follow-up questions going to look like? How am I going to push the students down the path that I want them to go in? And going back to the, you know, those Dan Meyer tasks, like... We used to make the mistake of just saying out loud, like, what is the math question that I want you to solve here? And the kids are immediately just going, oh, this is about math. Instead of opening the gates to anything to start, like the low floor, high ceiling is so important in those kind of open tasks because you want to get everybody into that task. And by the time they're in, they don't know they're in so deep that they definitely want to solve it after that. And if you just say, you know, and I'm not saying you, I'm just saying, because I did this, like, what's the math question? that we want to solve here, the curiosity is done. It's like, oh, I have to think of a math question. Like I have a hard enough time thinking of solving math questions, let alone coming up with one. What we move towards now is the notice and wonder. Like, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And then that is it. There is no talk of math at all until we start to say, you know, let's move from there to estimating once we kind of narrow down a question. And then from there, we can talk about what are the things that we're going to need to make this this estimation narrower? Like, how can we be more precise? So there is a lot of moves 
that go into making these work. And it's like for this conversation, it, it would be, we have a ton of moves, you know, that we could give you. Uh, maybe we can, uh, what do you think, Kyle, focusing on one or is there anything particular that we could chat about here? Yeah, there's only one last lingering question because I think, Kirsten, you gave us an example of how this challenge sort of shows up when you were away from class. Can you just take one more moment just so we can better understand, like, how does this challenge or these challenges, how do they sort of appear in a typical lesson when you're there and you're present? Because I think we could all relate when I leave something for my supply teacher or the substitute. There's once in a while where I'm pleasantly surprised, like, oh, wow, some really cool things happen. But typically, I'm not always super excited. And we might be able to maybe talk about some strategies for when you're away. But what does that challenge look like or sound like when you're present in the classroom? Where does it occur to you that you're like, huh, this isn't going how I was hoping it would or as smoothly as I would in my head? Yeah, I think for me, when I'm there, the challenge happens more near the end of things that I, again, I know you've mentioned the five practices, right? So that anticipating of what students might be coming up with. So, and that part and the monitoring piece and where are we going? And so I can select and sequence the student responses. And then for me, when I'm there, more of it is the pulling it all together. And what are the pieces that I want to make sure that we've captured together? And how do students have a place to record that thinking so that then we can the next day, apply what we've done. So I think for me, when I am there, that I have some of those things perhaps already, you know, can't always anticipate what's going to happen, especially with middle years kids, (laughs) where they're going to go with certain things. But I can anticipate some where the math will take us. And that does take practice for sure. Thinking back to my first time with the first three act math task, just choosing which task, thinking, I don't know what math might come out of this one. I better not pick that one. And so I think that in itself takes practice. So now when I am there, I think for me, it's the end of the lesson part where I would be thinking, now what do I do with this? I've selected and I've sequenced and we've figured out who's going to share and what they're sharing and why they're sharing it. But then what's the next step for me to facilitate for the students for their sense making? Yeah, we've sort of narrowed in here. There's lots of resources you've referenced, and that can be a challenge trying to organize them. I think if we go back to thinking about the intention, the learning intention or the learning goal for the lesson, that might help us sort of determine what should be there, what shouldn't. And earlier in the conversation, you had sort of referenced that as well, that like some days we go right into a math problem because you know it's going to take a little longer than usual or whatever. So it sounds like your timing and those types of things are definitely things you're considering. So when it comes to like selecting this learning goal and, you know, something I know I missed for the majority of my career was like I would have a learning goal in mind. And I would give a task and I would sort of, I would guess I would think about, you know, my anticipation would be thinking about what kids might do, but I didn't actually do the work in order to like, and by doing the work, I mean, I didn't do the math to really do what I think students might do, but then kind of widen that scope and say, okay, well, I always know that there's at least one student in my class. If it's only one, then, you know, you've hit the lottery, but I'm guessing it's like a group of students that aren't at that level. The things we anticipate tend to be kind of like the things that we anticipate coming from sort of that middle pack of the group, like the average, if you could even say so, because everyone's all over the place, even in that range. But then thinking, how could kids access this task if they aren't at the level that this task is requiring of them? And 
I think if I'm creating my learning goal based on my curriculum that I'm teaching that particular year, so if I'm teaching a grade eight class, I know I've got to teach this, I've got to teach that, I've got to teach this other big whack of things. And I'm always feeling like I'm pressed for time. So I think by thinking about where does that idea develop from in my anticipation and determining what sort of tools like mathematical models might be helpful to allow every student to access the task and to give me a place to kind of help them extend their thinking. Like even if I do have that grade eight one-to-one counter who's there, like what's the tool that I can help connect their strategy with their one-to-one counting to the strategy that a student in that like middle group is working on or kind of working with. And then also being able to connect to something that's a little bit more advanced. Like, you know, you're going to have a couple of those students who might be in a gifted program or they might be doing the after school math thing with Kumon or whatever sort of program that they're working with, that they might be coming with something that's very abstract. So trying to think of how we can connect all of those and through the selecting and sequencing during the lesson, if I could find some sort of common model and be able to make those connections between those representations, like that could be sort of where my thinking is during that consolidation. And that might might lead to maybe doing some sort of anchor chart where as a class, we sort of like, okay, we consolidate the learning and then together we create some sort of summary that could go on the wall as some sort of reference point. And that might be where you get in some of that, making sure that every student has something to go back to, not just tomorrow, but weeks from now when we circle back or cycle back to this idea and students all say, you never taught us this, or I don't remember this, or that retention issue is always there. We might have been able to make that moment that we could reference back to. One other thing at the end, and this was something that I struggle with too, is that when I jumped into doing these tasks, I would spend all class working with the kids to solve. And then how do I put that all together? Like Kyle said, an anchor chart is great. And I have sometimes I use anchor charts to keep that up all year. Sometimes I use an interactive note book style uh, note-taking activity near the end of that class. I got this idea from Sarah Carter from the website Math Equals Love, where she has very artsy type notes that she has with her students. It's like a flip book. There's flaps in a book and you open it up and all of a sudden reveals parts of you know linear relations. And so it's very interactive for the students. And what I've been finding is with my applied level classes is once we would consolidate, like Kyle has said, we can want to summarize that thinking that in some sense, that's the efficient strategy. It could be an anchor chart. But as I said, I'm turning towards more of these interactive notebook style notes where we now will cut this, this flip book out or we'll, these flaps or this foldable and we will capture our strategy there. And then we now have this resource that builds ongoing for the year and we can always refer back to that for the learning. And I felt that I was missing that before. And now we have this resource we turn to when we need to look something up or refer back to something. And, you know, when we're doing with vertical non-permanent services, all that thinking has gone away once all that whiteboard's erased. So we've been using that. I guess another thing that we've been doing in not as consistently as the notes and the anchor charts, but trying to get our kids to take pictures of their work. The only downside is they'll take a picture and it's on their phone. It's kind of gone or they will delete it, but they can store that in their online portfolio in our class. But I'm finding that the notes and the anchor charts work much better. Yeah. And I think it might be important for some of those teachers who are just starting out to think about the notes that you maybe would have given the students 
at the beginning now come at the end. Right. Right. And that's, that's exactly right. Shift in thinking for a lot of people, for myself, thinking about how I used to teach math and how I teach math now is. And for my students, we sometimes title it. What do I know for sure? And based on what it is that we've done and I get the groups to come up with, what are some things that now, you know, about solving whatever it is that we're doing so that we can try to consolidate some of the thinking. And again, that think pair share, right? That it's not me saying, here's what you did, but more look around at the whiteboards. What is it that we now know about how we can solve some of those things? And I agree that Sarah Carter and that website, there's some cool stuff on there. She's one of my go-tos for sure. You've sort of alluded to it, but just to make sure that folks listening are kind of realizing the importance of that time, you know, the whole metacognition piece where students might come to their desk and you might even give them five minutes of rapid write time where it's like quick and dirty sort of, hey, you've just done all this thinking at the whiteboards, come grab a seat, take some silent time, some independent time. It's like some people don't hear the word independent in math class as much anymore. So people are like, oh yeah, we're not allowed to do independent time. And it's like, no, no, not at all. Kids need independent time too. We were just really good at it, like maybe too good at it where kids only did things independently in math class. But here you could have them come back, sit, and assuming they've already had a fabulous discussion, a fabulous consolidation. You've, you know, for us, John and I, when we lead with vertical non-permanent, we actually bring the class yes. to different whiteboards that we've selected and sequenced and give students an opportunity to share specific aspects of what we're after in the consolidation. And then we sort of tie things together that are still like loose ends. Once that's happened, then they could come back to their desk and take that five minutes or however long you think it would take for them to have a nice meaningful bit of silent time to kind of think of what they did and look around the room and make some of those connections and go, okay, so we just did this. And it's not to make sure everyone gets every little piece, but for them to jot down what they feel is a key learning or a key understanding from that particular lesson. What I find when I've done things like that is that I'm assuming I've done this amazing consolidation because I've thought so long and hard about it. And because I think that everyone's thinking like me, which is never true. And then I have some kids share some of their takeaways. And what I realize is that sometimes they've still missed the point that I thought I made super explicit. And then what I can do is then I go, wow, okay. So that means I need to, for myself, my own reflection at the end of the lesson after the kids go away is to sit down and jot down like, whoa, I thought that they made a clear connection between that representation here and this one right here, but not one student mentioned that in this reflection, which suggests to me that maybe they totally missed that, which means maybe I'm not done with that idea, whether it's tomorrow or maybe it's a week from now that we come back to this idea, but at least I've got this anecdotal note for me to know, okay, where do we go next? Or right after they share, maybe that's where I now tie it together and I say, okay, so we've consolidated you've reflected, you've shared out to the group. And now I go, huh, okay, there's one connection that I haven't heard anyone say that I want to make really explicit right here. And I want you to add this to your reflection. So whether it's interactive, you know, using something like what Sarah Carter's shared online or what many others have done, or if it's kids creating their individual notes or on this anchor chart that I might be creating at the end of the day, it's like, I've just created this opportunity for me to maybe plug another, I'll call it a hole that may have continued to leak. If I just didn't ask the question for them to share out and didn't give them the opportunity to reflect on their thinking. 
And the other thing I wanted to mention as well is just this idea of, and it sounds like this probably isn't happening, but I know for me, one of the things that I used to do was I would try what I would consider to be like a really engaging or a really rich task, but I would pre-teach steps and procedures ahead of time. So I just want to make that super clear that in this particular case, I know that it sounds like the conversation we're having is sort of like the teaching comes through the task and then direct instructions sort of happening in that consolidation process after kids have shared. And then now we kind of focus in on the things that were missed. Obviously, once in a while, you hit that home run where kids are like, boom, they've taken care of everything. And then I'm just restating. But the majority of the time, there's pieces that are left unsaid or not connected. And that's where I get to take that time and and really connect those dots. But again, even in doing so, oftentimes kids miss that message. So yeah, so hopefully that reflection piece might be helpful. Yeah. And I think too, that's when we can give them some of the language that, well, here's how a mathematician might write this or say this, or here's the vocabulary we would use to describe this mathematical thinking. Because sometimes the students might have a way to have constructed their own knowledge or formulas or equations, and we have to be able to name it for them. Well, I think we've chatted about a lot of things here today, and we're hoping that that has helped you a little bit. But we're wondering right now from this conversation, what is something that you could put in your class now? And also, what is it you need a little bit more time to reflect on? Like, what would be your biggest takeaway from this conversation today? I think that just... It's been great to have some other people say, yeah, what you're trying, Kirsten, is kind of what we're all trying and some of the struggles and observations that you've had in your room or what other teachers are struggling with or observing with their students because they're kids and nothing ever goes perfectly the first time that we try it. So that's been really great to hear that we're trying different things and hoping for the best in our room, but also being very intentional and thoughtful about what it is that we're doing. And I think for me, the next steps are thinking more about taking some of these routines and tasks that I'm already doing and seeing if I can perhaps do a little bit more of that spiraling or interleaving different units or topics, big ideas of math throughout the year. And I'm starting that a little bit. And I think that's where my intentionality will maybe take me next. We want to thank you so much for joining us here. And we would love to check back in with you in a few months, six to 12 months, just to see how things are going. Would you be okay with that? That's something we'd like to see how that follow-up could go. That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, not to say that you can't uh, <laughs> shoot us an email or, or ask us anything in the next six to 12 no months. Contact. Yeah. No contact yeah. for yeah. six to 12 months. Uh, but yeah, we'd, I, think, I think it would be great for us to kind of call you back up and see how things are going. And the people listening to this conversation, seeing any of those changes that they made, we could even fill them in on the details we had here. And then that would kind of connect things to the next episode. So I think that would be great if you were willing. So uh, again, we want to thank you for joining us here. Kyle, you want to you add anything before? Before we uh, say thanks again? Absolutely. I want to say that I think to be able to be so comfortable with your teaching practice in coming 
on not only to chat with us about some challenges, but also to do it on the podcast. And I want to say on behalf of the education community, I know this conversation is going to help them as well, because for me and John, we've learned a ton here. I've got takeaways. And you know, my takeaway is that a routine I was doing with fractions, the counting around the circle is something that we could be doing with just counting, rope counting and skip counting. And we could be doing it for like groups of with multiplication. There's so many things we could do there. You know, I just want to thank you for taking the time for not having that fear or anything like that. And really, this type of discussion is what pushes us all forward in our profession and is going to make math moments that matter for more students. So we both want to thank you again, and we can't wait to have the next conversation six to 12 months from now. Well, thank you, gentlemen, as well. It's been tremendous talking to you. I have followed both of your blogs and websites since I've been teaching math these last few years again, and there's some fantastic resources on both of your sites. And that's why I heard about the podcast is because I'm, I'm an avid follower of yours. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again. And we can't wait to chat with you again in the very near future. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Well, there you have it. That was Kirsten Dick from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. We're looking forward to checking back with her to see how she's incorporated those big takeaways from this call over the next six months to a year. This was another Math Mentoring Moment episode with many more to come, where we will have a conversation with a member of the Making Math Moments That Matter community, like you, who is working through a challenge, and together we will brainstorm ideas and next steps to help overcome it. If you want to join us on the podcast for an upcoming Math Mentoring Moment episode where you can share a big math class struggle, you can apply over at makemathmoments.com slash mentor. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform by simply searching or use these quick links. For iTunes, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash iTunes. For Google Play, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash play. For Spotify, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash Spotify. And quick links will work for most other podcasting platforms as well. So give them a shot. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode nine. Again, makemathmoments.com forward slash episode nine. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, Math Teaching and Learning K-12. Don't miss our next episode. But if you're not interested in waiting until then... Why not watch our four-part video series to help build resilient problem solvers who don't want to stop learning math when the bell rings? You can find that free four-part lesson series at makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And 
plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable, but that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.